you know, I actually probably inclined to feel that many gifted and talented programs end up being the place where children who are already getting quite a lot of external supplemental support and encouragement find a place and that that ends up, though I think often, you know, quite wonderful for those children, it certainly is a social problem in that I think it does widen the gap. Yes. And I do feel at this point that is something that as a society we really should be, you know, thinking very hard about and the ways in which well-educated, affluent, ambitious, meritocratically attuned parents sort of game every every possible program put out there for anyone who is a little above average seems to me it's just inevitable and it it, it that gives me great pause welcome to think bigger think better where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. Hey, welcome back to Think Bigger, Think Better. I'm your host, Paul Gibbons, and today we have Anne Hulbert, who's an author of a very recent book, Off the Charts, The Hidden Lives and Lessons of American child prodigies. We're going to talk about 16 wonderkind that Anne talks about in her book. And we're also going to get into the more general themes of parenting advice and parenting culture, which were brought up in Anne's first book called Raising America. But before getting into the book off the charts, I want to tell you I've interviews set up with Annie Duke, a former famous professional poker player that consults and speaks on decision making, particularly decision making under uncertainty. I'm also really excited about an upcoming interview with Jeremy Hymans on his book, New Power, and Jacques Attali, a bank CEO and former advisor to President Mitterrand of France. So on to today's show, in Off the Charts, we have the stories of Bobby Fischer, of Shirley Temple, of Barbara Follett, of Henry Cowell, a total of 16 kids, their childhoods, and how their great promises children unfolded or failed to unfold in adulthood. The broad conclusion is, is that the relationship between extreme giftedness and adult accomplishment is a mixed bag. Most of these kids had more than their share of talent, but also many had more than their share of problems. Why would that be the case? How does talent reveal itself? What's the role of parenting? What style works best? What's the role of schools? Does our culture welcome such exceptional people or can they become outcasts? Perhaps the most broadly accomplished of all of Hulbert's kids is Norbert Wiener, and though he is central to the information age, if you have a phone in your pocket, Wiener had a role in the development of the mathematics that underlies most computer technologies today. Not that many people have heard of Wiener. We discuss him a lot. He's among the most accomplished in the book. He got his PhD from Harvard at 17 and was one of the great mathematicians of the 20th century cybernetics. He formalized the notion of feedback and systems thinking has implications for engineering, systems control, computer science, biology, neuroscience, philosophy, and the organization of society. But also really interesting in his biography, uh, Wiener talks about the fact that he suffered from depression his entire life. That book's called Ex Prodigy, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well as Anne's books. 
So there are very, very big questions if you're the parent of a gifted child. It can feel like an enormous burden to make those choices. Uh, one question we have to ask ourselves is, do giftedness and mental illness come in a package, as they appear to do in some instances? Or is the mental illness a result of social maladjustment or how the environment affects exceptional kids? Parents can project their own dreams onto kids, which creates enormous pressure. So this episode is partly for parents and educators to help them understand their role in fostering talent. Should you accelerate gifted kids? Should you let them skip grades? Is early college a good option? What about normal socialization? Social and emotional development lag intellectual development. And so you can be, you know, late 20s in terms of your intellectual development, but you can still be a very young teenager in terms of your emotional development. Well, is it easy to live in the world when that's the case? Another question is, how do you make your kids feel special? They are special kids, but without grandiosity or entitlement as as the case with some of the people that uh, we'll talk about in Anne's book. How do you reward effort and not just talent? So the questions we explore are, what's the link, if any, between mental illness, social maladjustment, and giftedness? What are the themes that unite gifted kids? What's the role of culture, parenting, and schools? And we also touch on parenting culture, helicopter parenting, and tiger parenting. Are they good things? So who is my guest? Who is this Anne Hulbert? Anne is from New York, and she entered Harvard at the age of 17, exceptional in her own way. She attended Cambridge uh, in England before joining the New Republic and then Slate. At Slate, she focused on child-rearing and education-related issues. So she's been writing about these themes for decades. She was a contributing writer at the New York Times magazine, regularly producing the Way We Live Now columns. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, The New York Times Book Review, Harper's The American Scholar, and The Times Literary Supplement, as well as numerous other newspapers and magazines. And she's now the literary editor at The Atlantic. So, Anne, welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better. So the first question is, of all the stories in, in Off the Charts, which one was the most interesting to write and research? Is I know that's like asking what's your favorite child, but anyway. That is, it's an, it, it is an interesting question. You know, I did, in fact, like many of the stories, but each for different reasons. And one of the pleasures of the book was the fact that each chapter was such a different challenge. I think I would say that the writing about the literary girls was, for me, particularly interesting because they broke the mold of what one usually thinks of as prodigies and the realm in which prodigies do their prodigious work. Mostly we think of math prodigies and chess prodigies and music prodigies and the notion that children can write in ways that stun adults and seem mature is kind of counterintuitive. So I was very intrigued by the cultural situation that made that possible. And then doing the actual research into both Barbara Newhall Follett, who is one of the girls I read about, uh, and Natalia Crane was particularly interesting. There's a very good collection of papers of Barbara Follett's at Columbia. Um, and I love archival work. So being able to go look at papers that told me a lot about her mother and told me a lot about her and it contained drafts of writing she'd done was was great. I loved doing that. And Natalia Crane, too, led me into old newspaper archives um, in my hometown of Brooklyn, because that is where she thrived as a poet whom many 
Americans were bowled over by and who they genuinely assumed was an adult. In fact, she lived at one point three doors down from where I grew up. So, so I had a certain sort of personal connection there and really enjoyed trying to figure out what was the reason for their huge appeal and for the controversies they stirred up. Both of them were, I think, imaginative creatures speaking to a time that felt they were in need of a sort of enchantment that only children could endow, but that they also were a little unnerving in the kinds of insights that they had about what the grown-up world was like and what children were like. In the case of Barbara Follett's novel, she told a story about a girl who really wants to escape her parents. And though it's told as a fairy story, it has a kind of dire quality to it too, and a sort of sense of how much children can feel trapped. And I was very curious to explore where that had all come from. And Natalia Crane, the young poet, wrote these poems that were sort of philosophically quite profound and seemed to suggest she knew a lot about sex and she was writing them at, you know, 11. So that too, intriguing to me. Yes. Um, when did she write? What age was she when she wrote The History of Honey? That She was probably 11 or so. It came out when she was 12, but... Well, let me give let me give readers uh, listeners readers huh, let me give listeners a a flavor of it because I was stunned. Uh, what's the nice piece to read? Imprisoned in this honey, aging is the eons wane. Are the souls of all the flowers waiting to be born again? Every lotus, every poppy, every tulip, every rose, and those who sip the honey slip beyond all human woes. Dream again of use digressions, index misty ways of joy. Turn unto the pagan pastimes of Confucius as a boy. So that's 11, right? <laughs> that's extraordinary. That uh, that's extraordinary. Uh, very, 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 very beautiful. I can see why you were touched by that. And um, yeah, for readers, that this is all from Off the Charts, which is, of course, we're talking to Anne about her most recent book. Um, I commend it to you. Um, they're very different, all of these. It's a, it's a, a, in business, we call them case studies, but they're very autobiographical treatments of, I guess there might be 20 children covered, 20 children's stories covered, give, give or take through to adulthood. Yeah, I think it's about six, 16 actually, but some in greater depth than others. But and they're paired usually in, in chapters or in some way counterposed to each other. And these are children who did really amazing things either before they were 12 or just sort of on the cusp of puberty. And I chose them not just for what amazing things they did, but also for the kinds of attention and debates they stirred up in their particular times, being interested in the whole question of why we're so fascinated by children who do remarkable things and what it is we hope to find in them, fear to find in them, like think about. Yeah, that is fascinating. I mean, they're all very different. And this is maybe a difficult question to answer. There's maybe no answer. But upon reflection, standing back from the book, what, if any, similarities might there be some threads between all of these 16 young people? That is a very hard question, I think. I mean, in many ways, I think saying that in their 
youthful years, they were extremely focused on their particular interest or talent is maybe not a very exciting thing to say, but I think that's absolutely the case, which is a bit of a reminder that for all that we tend to associate prodigyhood with some sort of spontaneous notion of, you know, a blossoming talent that just suddenly is there. That's really rarely the case. It takes real time and effort, no matter who the child is. I think one would also probably say that they were all in their different ways, not particularly tuned into the world of their peers. And that too, maybe doesn't seem so surprising, though, in a way, when we think of, you know, just unusual children who might not qualify as as prodigies, we do tend to think of them as not quite fitting in and being a little bit socially awkward and out of step. And whether that is what partly encourages them to pursue a talent on their own, or whether it's the pursuit of a talent on their own that sort of exiles them from normal childhood mingling, that gives them less practice at that is a hard question to answer, but I think it's true of all of them, really. Yeah, I think it may cut both ways, but certainly, you know, a kid who's got a rich intellectual life, a kid who's a college-level mathematician in their early teens or a college-level writer or musician, they have this rich life that they almost have to switch off when amongst their peers. It's interesting. They're unable, I don't think, to, to fully express themselves and talk about the things that they're interested in. They're monomaniacal, many of them. I think, I think you'd agree with that. And so social interactions, talking about, well, you know, baseball or talking about the Brady Bunch or, you know, things that, you know, might not come as easily to them, which makes them, and I think that might be a common theme too, is that they all had uh, social adjustment trouble. Uh, They all had difficulty if you want fitting in. Is that an accurate characterization? I think that's right, though. It's interesting if I just allude to a couple of particular stories, because they are interesting. The two boys I start the book with at the turn of the 20th century, um, Norbert Wiener and William James Sidus. Norbert Wiener actually was a very sociable guy and, you know, had a whole set of neighborhood friends, loved to go on, you know, play with them and go on walks with them and, you know, be out in the neighborhood with them. And in wrote often about being lonely when he he went up to Cornell and he was no longer in his, you know, Massachusetts, Cambridge area familiar terrain. And he felt there are no boys around. He wrote back to his parents, you know, I'm feeling really melancholy without kids to play with. So, which does not mean that Norbert Wiener was a super sociable guy as his adulthood um, certainly revealed, but it really struck me how much and how important the world of his friends, and he had a very close relationship with his sister too, were to him when he was a child. And William James Sidus was absolutely the opposite. He was the quintessence of what you just described, of the boy who really could not find a way and had no interest in communicating with really anybody, his parents included. Indeed, indeed. And that raises, of course, another question that comes throughout the book is if you want the tussle between mental illness, addiction, Asperger's, attention deficit disorder, Sometimes there's not much substance use in the book. So so the mental illness versus intellectual prowess, that certainly doesn't apply to all of them, but it certainly did apply to Fisher. It applied to Wiener. 
can't remember any other concrete examples now. Is that a tussle that you perceive basically in your in your researching of, of these young people? You know, I wouldn't say it stood out as much as I thought. I mean, I do have an entire chapter about autistic savantism and how to think about that and why at a certain point, kind of exactly when we were as a culture, I think, quite obsessed with, you know, 10,000 hours of work being the essence and crucial key to talent development. We were sort of fascinated by the antithesis of that, which were children who seemed suddenly to burst forth with some skill. And I think the notion that a brain anomaly is connected to, you know, extreme talent definitely is obviously the theme of that, you know, that chapter in a very big way. And you're absolutely right that Bobby Fisher's difficulties and their relation to his talent are a very striking theme of his story. I think in the case of Another very interesting child I write about, Philippa Duke Schuyler, who was the biracial child of a black writer and critic and his white wife, who was a piano prodigy and composer. I do think she, in the end, really did struggle as a young adult with all kinds of emotional issues. I feel they are very much related to her upbringing, not to her talent. Well, here's the question. Yeah. So for, you know, parents, and I, you know, I hope many listeners will be parents. Many of you listeners might be parents interested in, in this because it, 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 while it's not ubiquitous, it's, it's certainly, certainly something to think about. It's whether the package of these, what do they call them, non-neurotypical behaviors depression and Asperger's and attention deficit disorder come in a kind of cognitive hardwired package with the giftedness or whether these later, these maladaptations are a result of being socially estranged or being brought up in hothouse environments. And, and, and I suppose I'd be asking you to speculate if you guess which was which. What was the story with Wiener's parents? They were they weren't as pushy, uh, pushy as Sidis's parents, were she? I think that's right. I mean, I do think Leo Weiner was <laughs> not a gentle father, but I think he was a complicated figure and inspired plenty of loyalty and sort of hero worship in his son, as well as being a kind of fearful taskmaster, which he really was. And when you talk about sort of the toll that developing a talent can take. I think that Norbert would have said his father made his life very stressful and difficult. I think he would all and took credit for things and put blame on Norbert for flaws in ways that left Norbert feeling that he just wasn't sure what was his own talent and what was not. I think in a way what he often cited as the most traumatic thing for him was that when he graduated at 11 from Tufts, he was supposed to be inducted into Phi Beta Kappa, but he learned that the Phi Beta Kappa committee had sort of sat down together and said to themselves, well, you know, child prodigies often really don't turn out well at all. They, in fact, you know, burn out and therefore we're not going to elect Norbert to Phi Beta Kappa. And he was completely and totally crushed. I mean, it really did send him into a 
deep depression that went along with sort of a low fever. And just, it was the first of, you know, many bouts of depression, but he described it as just completely pulling the world out from under him. The thought that the world of adults was sitting there waiting for him to fail, which I do think is a very important lesson for anyone to think about is the power of expectations, you know, both positive and negative, but you know, I don't remember a great deal from my teen years, but uh, I do remember the name of a kid called George Barony. I, I grew up in New York like you, and um, I was a clever kid. I went to college. Well, I took my first college course when I was still in middle school. And I remember this kid's name, George Barony, because my parents must have mentioned that guy's name daily. He went to straight to a doctoral program at Rockefeller University when he was 18, and it's the only thing I remember yeah. was that. And from my point of view, then as a, you know, sort of normal in many respects, but, you know, talented in, in, in lots of directions. And uh, that was a standard by which my parents didn't mean to set that as a standard, but that was a standard that inadvertently they set as someone I ought to admire or aspire to. And in fact, I I did. I mean, I could have probably started a doctoral program at 18 too. So, I mean, it's it's kind of weird, but, you know, parents can create harm if they're not too careful uh, sometimes in setting of expectations. And what you say is interesting too, because in some senses or another, we see in these children, uh, certainly we saw in Fisher, certainly in Wiener, uh, uh, they were in some senses desperate for recognition, perhaps just a very human willing, wanting to be seen for who they were, but also there were sometimes pariahs. And again, I, I that feels to me like a double bind, uh, what psychologists might call a double bind. Is that, is yes, that a yeah, no, fair I, characterization? I, I think that often is true that the feeling that you are being both singled out and praised for your great talent and also the feeling that sort of in an egalitarian country like ours, there's a sort of animus towards those who are way ahead. And, you know, I think in Bobby Fisher's case, I do really think he was somewhat paranoid from the beginning, and he would have been whether he'd been talented or not. And I do think various stories in the book suggest ways in which that needn't happen at all. You know, when you think of Henry Cowell, the American composer who I write about in one of the chapters, who was one of the psychologist Lewis Terman's favorite examples in his great quest to round up lots of young geniuses and find out what happened to them in later life, that, you know, he, I think, felt hugely accepted for his oddities and whatever he did, his parents, you know, welcomed and thought were, were quite remarkable <laughs> outpourings. And then he hung out in a sort of, you know, theosophical community where, again, whatever he did seemed great. And I think the thought he was beat up by kids at a local public school, and then he never went back. So he actually ended up in a world in which I think he got to, as a child and a young adult anyway, feel mostly as though he was as you say, sort of hailed for and singled out for in a good way, his talents. Yes, indeed. So, I mean, of the 16 that you studied, how many, <laughs> this is an impossible thing to answer well, but uh, how many would you say had 
adult achievements commensurate with their early promise? And how many, if you want, fell by the wayside of life, if you will? You know, I think it's telling that I, I mean, at some point in the many years I was working on this, I did do a tally. And then I kind of put it away thinking I didn't, that was sort of not, that was exactly the spirit the book was not aiming to convey. But I would say, you know, Norbert Wiener, absolutely, you know, fulfilled great promise, you know, not without huge difficulty and considerable unhappiness, but absolutely made great contributions in cybernetics. Henry Cowell was a very important and influential composer and drew lots of attention to American music in a good way. I think Shirley Temple, though she certainly did not go on to excel in the realm in which she was a child prodigy, I think there is a way in which you can find some continuities there. Though she wasn't a prodigious adult, <laughs> she was a diplomat. She did, you know, she did she made a mark. And of the and Bobby Fisher, you know, I guess we really do have to say he was a, you know, was truly a remarkable chess player as a mature person. So later in his life, I, I think that would probably be a mark one wouldn't want to put in the credit column exactly. But then I think the computer prodigies, you know, are still sort of works in progress. And the 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 ones I focus on are not as well known, but they are definitely doing you know, important work. They're not, I weave them in with Steve Jobs and other Bill Gates and people we've heard of who obviously I think we would say went on to make their, their mark. That's, so, a great, so, that's a great chapter. That's the one that resonated with me most strongly. Uh, I remember you telling the story of, uh, is it Jonathan Edwards who went to live in the dorms at the age yeah. of four, 14 or something like that? And uh, I did too. I think I was 15 when I moved out. That's kind of interesting. And he's still, ar he's still around. He's still cooking at, at the MIT Media Lab, if I recall. Yeah, he's, he's working on, on a particular kind of chip that we may hear more about. Oh, well, not, no, not, not, sorry. That's, that's, sorry. I'm Joe Bates is. Yes, Jonathan Edwards is still still working away. I think he's on his own at this point, but I should obviously get your story. <laughs> oh, well, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I, again, you know, it's a funny thing. I've done, I've done many remarkable things, but I, you know, again, it's this question of expectations. When you've, uh, when you burn brightly at the age of 15 or 16, one of the psychological difficulties, I think all of this, these young people may well have confronted was the expectations are that, you know, one way or another, either self-set or inherited parentally or inherited culturally or from teachers or something like that, you ought to have a Nobel Prize by the time you're 21. And um, they, they don't give those away in Cracker Jack boxes. So everything you'll do, however, you know, you write a novel, you start a business, you, you know, I think uh, Joe Bates sold a business for $49 million when he was in his 20s, according to your story, all of that might pale in the sense of the expectations that were might have been set with for you when you were very young. And that's, you know, that's, I think that's, I think I can say that's a psychological challenge. I have to say that authoritatively in the first person, but, some, <laughs> but some, anyway, it's interesting. Well, one of the things I think that people are going to be super curious about, I meet parents sometimes who say they've got a super able child, maybe not in the scale of some of the examples in the book. And you know, it's often an interesting conversation. I sometimes ask, you know, are they skipped a grade? And some parents are horrified by that. And, you know, absolutely, we don't want that. So there seems to be a notion in parenting that we ought to, as much as possible, give them a normal childhood. And then there are parents who obviously push, push harder and harder 
And then there are parents, I think, also who hold back, who, you know, you know, again, in the sense of this quest for normalcy. So, you know, this is asking you to somewhat to speculate, although I, I, don't, I don't doubt you've read lots and lots of the research on this. What seems to be the role of the parents in fostering these exceptional youth, but without having some of the difficulties, psychological or adjustment, social adjustment difficulties later in life. What What's your, your theory about that? I guess I would say, I think I would qualify everything I'm about to say by saying what I believe and probably you believe too, which is I really do think so much depends on the particular child, but, and also the particular parents. But I think sort of, if you're looking for a general formula, I think the parents who are most successful are parents who can do what is really, really hard to do, which is somehow separate their own ambitions and desires from their child. And, you know, we would sort of think that's not so hard to do, but I actually think it's extremely hard to do, particularly if you have a child who is, you know, amazingly curious, interested, bright, eager, and good at doing things, you know, you just get the parents get to bask in the reflected glory of that, and all of their unrequited dreams uh, are are invested in this child. And I bet you that can be one of your psychologists. I'll quote from your book on page two ninety. It's the tragic misunderstanding, I believe, of where one human being begins and another ends. <laughs> I thought it was a lovely quote. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And and I think you know we may think that we know what it is to do that. But I guess I would have to say, I think it takes real restraint and self-awareness and, you know, it's just, it's hard to do. But I think that is probably the key because I think giving a child a sense that whatever it is that they're quite obsessively pursuing, they're pursuing because on some level, it really is what they want to do. It's not what someone else wants them to do is a key element to future fruitful pursuit of anything else or of that same talent. I think the teenage, adolescent sort of midlife crisis, which I think pretty much every talented child has, is weathered far more successfully if the roots of autonomy are kind of firm. And I think that really does depend on having parents who kind of hang back and don't you know, do everything they can to be enabling in ways that are not investment of a self-motivated sort. And that requires an incredible emotional maturity on the part of the parents to be able to enough self-awareness to be able to disentangle themselves. And not just in the domain that they wish the child to, but the child, you know, may, may wish to, may not want to be you know, a concert pianist and playing Carnegie Hall at the age of 18. So not just where they excel, but how far they choose to excel. Right. Well, and one of the things I was interested to think through uh, in the chapter about the autistic savants I write about is when you have a situation in which the children are cut off from the world, so the whole motivation on the part of the parents in the teaching the talent is to give the child a way of interacting with the world as a child. It really isn't so much about turning the child into a future anything. I feel that's a very helpful 
sort of paradigm to have in mind that that really is what you would think a parent would most want to do for a child is make their childhood as rich and interesting as possible. Not because it's going to make them a genius adult, but because, you know, a rich and interesting childhood is a great thing to have. Yes, indeed. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting. You know, there's a book that wants to be written, and I don't no doubt that this um, this crossed your mind is the How to Parent. <laughs> it hasn't been, to my knowledge, been written How to Parent the Able Child, has it? Oh, you know, there are many books about you know how to deal with your gifted whatever. But- oh, okay, <laughs> there are. Maybe I've I've not read them. Uh, <laughs> certainly, there's enough insight from your book. I guess it has to be extrapolated from the narrative t- to some extent. You're very cautious about leaping to generalized prescriptive advice, I'd say. Yes, I I think I think having written before I wrote this book, a book about sort of centuries worth of prescriptive advice about how parents should deal with their children, there's nothing like that to make one rather humble about <laughs> undertaking such an enterprise. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, that I do want to touch a little bit on that, but I want to ask you: What was your view about the school environment in in your studies of the of the gifted kids? The, you know, how are you thinking about how schools they're better than they once were? I mean, there were no gifted and talented programs when I was a kid, and now every school has one. So something has changed. I don't know how it changed or who changed it, but um, what's your thoughts? What are your thoughts about that? Do you mean what are my thoughts about the state of education now or looking at the school situations for the children I write about what I thought of them? I know you have profound concerns about the general state of education. That was your Spencer Fellowship uh, at Columbia, if I recall correctly. Um, But this was more what the role of the schools and in a sense, helping the most able, because there is a view, and not a not a ridiculous view either, that schools should spend their resources on the people who are exceptionally talented or do just fine anyway, and that schools ought to invest their resources more squarely in the middle or bringing up the kids who are, are disadvantaged or struggling. And yeah, I have some sympathy with that, even though I'm sort of in the other camp, if you will. What, do you, what are your thoughts about the role of the school, the schools and the school system? You may not have any. I mean, it may not be something that you've speculated a great deal on, but perhaps speculate away. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I actually probably inclined to feel that many gifted and talented programs end up being the place where children who are already getting quite a lot of external supplemental support and encouragement find a place and that that ends up, though I think often you know, quite wonderful for those children. It certainly is a social problem in that I think it does widen the gap. Yes. And I do well, feel- Well, it sticks a great big wedge in the gap. I mean, it, it attempts to, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. And, and I do feel at this point, that is something that as a society, we really should be, you know, thinking very hard about and the ways in which well-educated, affluent, ambitious, meritocratically attuned parents sort of game every possible, you know, program put out there for anyone who is a little above average seems to me it's just inevitable. And it, it, it that gives me great pause. It does to me also, as I'm con- considering the Stanford Great Books program for my teenager next summer, uh, you know, anything we can invest in taking our precious little darlings and 
giving them that little extra edge in life. Right. I, I try not to do too much of that. It's interesting. One of the things that GT programs may do indirectly is provide a sense of community to these kids. And that's something that was, you could say, was strikingly ab- was absent from many of them. Kids who are a bit like them in, in certain respects, give them a milieu. Oh, yeah, that's a speculation, but it could do that. I don't. Yeah, no, I think I think there's something to that. I mean, I did have a very interesting conversations related to the sort of Julian Stanley, you know, Johns Hopkins Center for Talented and Gifted mission with a young math genius, really, who said in retrospect, you know, the sort of message of being singled out as a natural math whiz, young, and given, put, put into situations like math Olympiads and other things with fellow exceptional math whizzes gave him a sense that, you know, that's what you have to be to end up being genuinely good and make a contribution in math and feel that he felt that that message got conveyed to many people who might not simply have been as early bloomers in the math field as he was. And also it seemed to him it left out the ways in which so much achievement now in fields like math is collaborative. And he very much lamented that, which I think is a sort of interesting perspective on our real focus on the importance of early, early achievement is some pieces are different. And the fact that you do hit certain milestones very early is not in itself the definition of what it is to be good at something. No, I mean, this social maladaptation, as you say, we glorify the individual, we glorify Bill Gates, and um, but fewer people have heard of Paul Allen. Everyone's heard of Steve Wozniak, but we forget that, you know, to do anything of any note, and it's not quite, you wouldn't want to take this too far, you can obviously write a book somewhat by yourself, but, but you know, some of the, the great achievements are tend to be team achievements. You tend to need to bring people along with you. It's particularly true in the, in the business sphere. And somewhere, uh, somewhere or another, those social skills, the social adaptation is part of, we want an exceptional society and an idiosyncratic uh, Bobby Fischer type of fellow uh, could never have made a contribution outside his individual performance over the chessboard because he was an unbearable human being. So we don't want to raise people like that, even milder versions of that. We want to raise people who are able to collaborate because even math, which looks like individual prowess, is in fact a team game. So I think that, I think that's what you're saying. Yes, and I think that is truer now than has ever been the case in the math and sciences, and probably in just about every field. And it's cross-discipline, and the great solutions today are cross-disciplinary, and we don't. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, that's interesting. Well, I don't want to leave listeners without a taste of raising America because I just think it's such. A fascinating book. And I confess I haven't been able to do justice to all of it. But it seems to be there's a message there. I think this really important one. I remember when my kids were born, uh, there was a, a book, a show called Super Nanny. And there was a book written about how kids have to be raised on a super disciplinarian uh, schedule, you know, breastfeed, let the kids crying when they're hungry, you know, don't succumb to that. Don't pick them up when they're crying. You know, everything's on schedule, sleep's on schedule, feeding's on schedule, play is on schedule. And then there were contrary advice to the, which we tend to subscribe to. And I did think that most of these people there 
most of the advisors on parenting, and these were best-selling books, were making it up as they went along. What's your view, having surveyed 100 years, or 150 years of parenting advice, what was your... What are your conclusions on that matter? Well, I think what I ended up concluding in that book is that we do like to have two views always on offer that look like they're kind of opposed to each other. And they are a version of what you just suggested, you know, that we like having the person who tells us parent knows best, everything should be sort of cut and dried and disciplinary and clear and organized. And the other side is very much in favor of sort of emotional bonding and child focused enabling. So sort of the John Locke versus Rousseau influenced view of things, but that nobody really thinks either one of these approaches on its own in its pure form, or even it's, you know, not so pure form is truly the answer. So the most popular experts kind of go out there with their seemingly clear-cut view and then proceed to hedge a bunch. And I ended up thinking, because this is sort of what happened to me in working on the book, is that maybe what's most helpful to parents is actually to pay attention to the experts who don't really seem like their type. Because so if you're like what sounds like you are like as a parent and as I am like as a parent, which is that we are very interested in emotional closeness with our kids, where I was never very strict and not much of a disciplinarian. And is that to go read those experts is to be made to feel guilty that you're not living up to the highest form of that sort of bonding approach to child rearing, inevitably, because that's how we always feel when we read experts. And that's not terribly useful. Whereas if you go read, you know, the disciplinarians who say, you know, look, you've got your rights, you're a parent, you can tell them what to do, you should back off, they should be more independent, you should blah, blah, blah. And they say things in a way that you think, ah, this is not my kind of guy at all. But you listen to it a little bit and you think, you know, there's something to that. I am too invested, I'm too solicitous, I need to step back a little. And that is a useful way to proceed. And you do it less because you're a loyal, nervous acolyte of the expert who's telling you it, but just because you think, hmm, that's smart. I should, you know, dilute my approach a little bit. Indeed. Very interesting. You know, I, I one of the things I researched for my little book was um, behaviorism. And uh, there was a, uh, an article by J.B. Watson. J.B. Watson was the most, uh, for listeners, was the most, probably the most famous well, I guess American psychologist of the 20th century, I suppose there were a few people contend for that thing, but he was he wrote an essay called The Dangers of Motherly Love, which counseled against, I don't know, picking children up and hugging them and kissing them and telling them you love them. He, he counseled against such things, and it's an extraordinary thing that he was the number one parenting authority in the United States. And we, I mean, rightly or wrongly, we'll never know, we don't know whether he's right, it sounds neurotic. In today's culture, it sounds like a ridiculous thing to say it's in today's culture, but that sounds downright harmful. And um... Yes, I did think one of the discoveries I made in the course of Raising America is that I think his sway has probably been, thankfully, exaggerated. I think one of the reasons he wrote in that sort of over-the-top Mencken style tone of, you know, don't kiss your child, don't coddle them, that is disgusting, and the route to an utterly failed child and that sort of thing, is that he knew people weren't really listening to him that much. And it was sort of his way to 
claim a lot of attention. And if you look at, you know, what was written about his really extreme version, most people were, were sort of saying, oh, really? Though there were much more calm versions of it in government booklets that took the behaviorist view a calmer spirit, which I think really was quite influential. But we'd never elect anyone in the United States to high office who made hyperbolic statements in order to get attention. That could could never happen in the United States. (laughs) He'd have been very popular on Twitter, I imagine, if that was his approach to... uh... (laughs) Oh, what a thought. Watson on Twitter. Watson on Twitter. Uh, Yeah, I I think Raising America is a really interesting, uh, a a really, really interesting book. And I think uh, the conclusion I draw, again, I haven't haven't managed to finish it, but it was really that one must treat parenting advice and parenting prescriptive advice, particularly for non-experts. And many people do write these books are non-experts, which seem to me just to be projections of their individual neuroses, unfulfilled, uh, what Freud Freud called wish fulfillments, the way they wish they'd been parented or something like that, especially from non-experts. But even from experts, I think we ought to approach, I don't think we've figured out in terms of the evolution of psychological science, you know, I, I don't think the category, I think we may be 100 years from the ca- categorical treatment of parenting, authoritative treatment of parenting. Um, I just don't think, it feels to me like we're groping around in the dark for generalized answers to something that may actually be too particular to ever generalize about. I mean, it may just be, there may just be a particularity to it that uh, abstract principles and rules may not ever be usefully the case. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's my speculation. Well, and I think really, in a way, what's most interesting about parenting advice is what it tells us about the social moment and the cultural concerns that are in the air when the expert is writing. They present themselves as sort of scientifically up to date, but I think they're much more interesting as, you know, windows onto what we're worried about, how much we think children should be conforming or shouldn't, how much we think, uh, you know, they're too soft and emotional and need to be toughened up, how much we worry that they're, you know, glued to their screens. I mean, I think every era faces different versions of pressures that are not all different, but that do give experts different ways and different emphases that they focus on. And and they do that because parents want them to. And it's not as there is some right or wrong approach, I think. And they're, they're, so you say read them as cultural narratives, basically. They're, they tell us more about our culture and what plays is legitimate in our culture than about any Ten Commandments type principles, that any mm-hmm. kind of scientific advice, if you will. I think that's right. I think that's true, too. What are your, um, in, in, in sort of in, in wrapping up, what are your your thoughts, what would people, you know, from another culture, from another time find most, uh, I'm speaking to you as an acute observer of parenting culture, which is in all your books, but um, what would people find most bizarre about today's parenting culture? In the, the right now, you know, one of the interesting things I feel is that I don't, uh, since I wrote Raising America, I feel I am less in touch with what are the sort of current themes of parenting culture. And I think 
what I don't know, really, is I felt as though we were coming to a moment, courtesy of the internet, in which a little bit more of parents themselves taking over from experts and being mutual advisors and, you know, more of the old style gathering around the fire that we assume used to be the way people reared their kids and talk to each other about experiences and draw from each other's experiences. And that seemed to me, you know, potentially a, an interesting and useful new mode. Of course, that's not how it's played out. I think in a way that that sort of Facebook, Instagram, you know, everything on display and everyone judging everyone constantly has made it seem as though parents may be even more intimidating as advisors than experts ever were. And given that so much of the story of experts, I told it was about them not just trying to tell parents how to raise children, but sort of an effort to tell women how they should lead their lives, how to deal with the fact that more and more of them didn't find only motherhood to be enough. And so the sort of escalating effort to make motherhood seem really challenging and really interesting so that people would want to stay home and do it. And then suddenly realizing, wait, this is not what are my audience and market wants to hear and then needing to sort of figure out what to tell a market that didn't want to hear that, but still does want to believe that motherhood is very challenging and, you know, rewarding. I think that's what a, I mean, I think a Martian would think we are very confused about, you know, how we think we value the care of children. We really cannot decide whether we think it's the most important thing in the world or really just not important at all. I think there's a book called The Invention of Childhood. Is that uh, the fetishization? It talks about the fetishization of childhood. Childhood and adolescence were invented around the turn of the last century, around 1900, something like that. Is that correct? They weren't, they weren't a thing. Well, I think, you know, ever since Philippe Aurier wrote about you know, the invention of childhood and dated it way earlier than that. There have been many historical efforts to sort of pinpoint some particular moment. I I guess I would subscribe to the view that it's reinvented again and again. (laughs) So that's probably a fair point. There is a fetishization of it. I mean, I think, I think there's an idealization of childhood is supposed to be a time, but then also again, like with the gifted children too, there seems to be a double bind because not only is it a time we fetishize, which is supposed to be special and precious and carefree and lots of play, but then also the other force is that, you know, and, uh, and make sure you get above 700 in the SATs, you know, and, and get in and get into a good college. There's a, it's a funny, it strikes me as a double bind. The other thing that's cultural norm, which I find really disturbing and strange is, is, is the irrationality around safety. You know, as a kid who used to wander around New York city when he was 11 and take public transportation and do all that kind of stuff, which struck me as normal. I don't think as unusual today, that would be seen as abdication of parental responsibility. My, uh, my ex-wife, mother of my kid won't even let the, my 14 year old take public transportation. And we live in a small town in a very safe part of Colorado. So there's a, there's a sort of, a sort of nuttiness around safety. And I think it was in the New York times. There was an article about why can't she walk to school is actually letting child children walk a half a mile or a mile to school is seen as, too dangerous today, despite what statistics might say. So that's a cultural norm for sure, I think, is today that people would find really strange and alien. 
just letting kids and a play date to the scheduled play date rather than go over to your friend's house and be home by dinner or whatever. Go find some friends in the neighborhood to play with. I think those are differences too. Is that is that your observation? Well, I think, I mean, I do think, yes, the, the standards of safety and the ways in which they are so susceptible to sort of crowdsourcing and the minute there is a norm that you can't let your kid walk to school, then nobody can let their walk their kid walk to school alone. And it, you know, really does become a, a sort of norm very quickly. I do think that stands out as a sort of post baby boom era change. Yes, I do. I mean, I don't know how to think about why exactly. Um, and I do think that to me is a very interesting question. It, it feels as though it represents a view that the world is full of unknowns, but that parents need to be in complete control in a way that I think our parents knew the world was full of unknowns, but did not assume the mantle of total responsibility in some way for what might happen to a child. And it, that to me is almost as interesting as the phenomenon itself. You know, it's like, what is it that makes us so, so cautious? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's a very sort of hyper modern thing is that, you know, there are th is the unwillingness to accept that there are things that are out of our control and unwillingness to, hmm, that's interesting. And I think that when you think about child rearing advice in general and the ratcheting up of the purview, the expectations, the demands of it, which sort of is what Raising America is about, it really does make a certain amount of sense. It's it more and more and more and more and more is credited to parental control. And if that happens, then you know you sort of expect what will go along with it is a sense that parents need to keep asserting it in more and more realms. And I'm not sure that's the best thing for children. I'm not sure either. I think I'm with you on that. So this, are you working on another project? Is there another book in a stage or another development? What are you thinking? Mm -hmm. Or maybe thinking about writing another book? Maybe you're writing another book. What's coming next? I know I am not sure. This is, I am happily, you know, engaged in editing other people's writings right now and have not really had a chance to let another idea steep. And I feel actually that that's probably good for me to be, you know, not rushing to another project right now. Well, certainly. And if it's going to take you 12 years, you'd probably worth spending a year thinking about what it might, what, what form it might take. I'm certainly uh, looking forward to whatever you turn your pen to next. I mean, I dare say I have to guess it will be in the area of parenting and parenting culture and child rearing. But, you know, I could be, you know, I guess I could be wrong. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe not. This was 2018, so I want to recommend off the charts to, to of course, to all listeners. Can I ask you, where can people find you? Where can people track you down on social media? Uh, where can people, how do people follow your writings at The Atlantic? What, what, can, what can we give people? Uh, uh, well, I do write at the Atlantic and that is, you can find that at the Atlantic.com or you can subscribe to the magazine. I, the print actual print object is my main, um, focus, but everything can be found online as well. Um, I am not 
much of an enthusiastic tweeter, but I have a Twitter presence, <laughs> but it's not much. So nobody will rush there. I mean, do rush there if you wish. It's such that I can't really remember what my, I think it's Ann Holder one. And that is, I think probably the full extent of it. As you can maybe tell from the interview with Anne, my own journey has some echoes that are found in Off the Charts. I was one of those uh, slightly weird uh, kids. I audited my father's college chemistry course at 11. I took a course in computer programming at a technical college when I was 13. I entered the UW, University of Wisconsin at 15 as a junior, first to study math and languages. I spoke a few languages at the time in addition to English. So I was pretty good looking, uh, pretty good looking candidate at the age of 15. Uh, I was also on the sailing team and I worked as a computer programmer um, back in the 1970s and also as a specialist in something called NMR spectroscopy. So if you've had an MRI at a hospital, that was one of the precursor technologies. But from there at 15, uh, you know, nearly a college graduate, I um, careened downhill. It wasn't an easy journey. I certainly had a lot of bullying uh, when I was young, which had an effect on me. Living in college dorms at 15 when you were socially insecure carried its own problems. The University of Wisconsin is a big party school, and I joined the frat scene, began to drink very heavily. Uh, and though I graduated at 19 from the university, I barely got out. You know, my grades had fallen from, you know, 4.0 average to 2.8 average. I got into medical school, but went to Wall Street, which is the worst decision that you can make because making buckets of money, and I did make buckets of money in your early 20s when you're a young alcoholic is, is like putting out a fire with gasoline. So that really sort of set my life taking a dirt road. I didn't touch a book between the ages of 19 and 32. So from being a really dedicated scholar and student, I became the anti-scholar, a, a sort of full-time hedonist and during those years, depression set in. It was partly due to the perceived gap between what might have been when I was 15 and what I was, because, you know, frankly, uh, I think there's no better way to describe what I'd become at the age of 32 than a bum. I, I was effectively homeless. Although I never slept rough, I made the trip from couch to couch, from parent to parent, to sibling to sibling, to friends and girlfriends' couches. I finally got sober at 32, which is about 25 years ago, and began to carve out a life and, and do some things. But, you know, I'd done a lot of damage during those years. Certainly, I flirt with minor things, minor depression, minor mental illness, and something like that. And I'll never know whether uh, that was a result of the maladaptations that were a result of my sort of early giftedness or whether I just did so much damage with substance abuse disorder and alcoholism to my neurochemistry that, you know, I will never be, you know, several sandwiches short of a picnic, as, uh, as they sometimes say. But anyway, this wasn't a purely academic exercise for me. I was drawn to Anne and Anne's book partly out of personal curiosity and making sense of my own story. I'm very much on a journey um, to sort of realize the potential that, you know, I might have had when I was 15. I'd like to make a difference, to leave a legacy and to use whatever talents I, I might still have at the age of nearly 58. I've had some success as a CEO, as a consultant, as a mind sports competitor, as a professor, as a writer, as a trader. And, and this might be my neurosis. I feel like I ought to contribute more, do more, and achieve more. 
I'm hoping that the Truth Wars book may be that important contribution. But between you and me, the writing of it is very challenging, not least because the landscape changes daily. Facebook, fake news, the political context, election tampering, and corporate fraud. And so the pay, while I'm writing the book slowly, the pace of change uh, in the areas about which I'm writing are changing all the time. So uh, right now, I'm getting ready for the World Series of Poker, which begins in a month. I'm studying poker almost daily before you know, trying to win a world championship bracelet. Uh, World Series of Poker takes six weeks. It's in Las Vegas. So I'll be taking myself down there to live as a poker professional for a few weeks before coming back and resuming work on fake news. I'm going to keep podcasting during the time. Uh, I take a couple days off for rest and one of those rests will be a podcast day. So uh, that's a little bit about me. I hope that's not too self-indulgent. Thank you very, very much for listening to the podcast. Thanks for all your support. And I look forward to talking to you next week. To celebrate the launch of the show, and thank you all for listening, I'm going to be giving away books, lots and lots of books. All you have to do is leave a review in iTunes. We're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks. So head on over to paulgibbons.net slash iTunes to get easy-to-follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great, but this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, to get information on book and blog releases and new video content, head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place.